0: We've been in the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We've kind of paused for a moment because in 1st Thessalonians we saw the Apostle Paul speaking of what we refer to as the rapture of the church, taking away of the church from this earth. We believe that there's a sequence of events that will be yet future that we certainly believe in strongly as being very much literal in their scope. And the rapture of the church is that which we proclaim in this ministry of Calvary Chapel as a pre-millennial event and as a pre-tribulation event. Now the words millennium and tribulation are also part of what is described in the Word of God in chapter, or rather, in Second Thessalonians. Instead of the rapture of the church, which we believe has already taken place by the word of the Lord, by the time the events that are spoken of in Second Thessalonians, we now find the church gone and the world engulfed in what is known as the tribulation period. It's known by other names. We've focused on that fact. It's known as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's known as the 70th week of Daniel. Jesus described that period as a time that has never been nor ever shall be afterward. And if he doesn't return to the earth, men would destroy themselves. But he has told us very specifically that men will not destroy themselves. They'll come very close. But he will intervene at the end of the tribulation period. And he will set his feet upon that mountain just east of Jerusalem known as the Mount of Olives. Zechariah describes that particular event as when he sets his feet upon Mount Zion, there will be a great earthquake and the mountain will be split in two from the north and the south and there is going to be a great valley that will be created east to west as a result of his arrival. He will destroy at that time all those who are enemies of God who during that seven years of tribulation would have been willing to receive the mark of the beast because they rejected the words of God. They rejected the salvation that was offered to them. They became servants of that antichrist, that beast that is described in Revelation. And for seven years, there will be terrible events taking place upon the face of the earth such that many people will die there will be a group of individuals who will not take the mark of the beast. They're identified as tribulation saints. We find them in the book of Revelation, having had their lives taken because of the beast, who did not let them live because they refused the mark. And many of those people on the face of the earth will indeed die during that period of time in opposition to the beast. But they will be, according to the Word of God, beheaded, destroyed, killed. There are many other things that we have looked at that we've sort of glossed over, but I don't want to focus any more time on that tribulation period other than to say that it will come to an end. As I said, though, when Jesus sets His feet upon Mount Zion, there will be a great army that will come and oppose His arrival. And He, by the word of His... Mouth will destroy them in an instant. They will not be able to defeat him. And I'm grateful for the fact that the Word of God tells us so very clearly that when he does come to the earth and sets his feet upon Mount Zion, the book of Revelation clearly says he'll be coming from heaven on a white horse. That's cool. But what's even more cool is that all of us who have already been in heaven during that seven-year period of time, as we discussed last week, will be riding back to the earth with him, each of us on our own horse. Do you know how to ride a horse? Oh, you will know then. Are there animals in heaven? Yeah, well, there are horses there, so why not other kinds of animals? Of course, God will take care of all of those questions you needn't ask. About your favorite pet. Just trust in God. Well, anyway, the thing that I want to focus on today is after Christ's arrival. Remember, we talked about the fact that he will judge the nations who are remaining on the earth, and there will be a large number of people in their fleshly mortal bodies, like what you and I are clothed in presently, who will enter into what is known as the kingdom, referred to by almost every scholar of the Word of God, as the millennial kingdom of Christ. They say millennial because it is a reference to what is spoken of in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. Six times we find a reference there to a 1,000-year period. It will be a 1,000-year period of Christ's reign upon the earth, where He, the Prince of Peace, will establish peace. Remember, the beast initially comes into power proclaiming himself to be a man who has an ability to bring peace upon the earth. He fails miserably because there is only one true Prince of Peace, and that is Jesus Christ. And there can be no peace on the earth until Christ himself reigns. And he will show himself to be able to do that over a period of 1,000 years. And again, there will be a large number of people entering into that kingdom in their mortal bodies. But there will be many things that will be changing over that course of time. And I'm going to here discuss some of that with you so that you'll know what's our part in all of that. Again, we come with Him and He comes from heaven with us to the earth. And so there must be some responsibility that we have once we get here. What is that responsibility? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me now to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and let's begin to look at some of those things that we should be able to get from the Word of God in regard to those events that are about to happen, I believe, very soon. No less than seven years from now, the reign of Christ will begin. But he says in verse 1 of chapter 20, the book of Revelation, these words, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The first order of business, Jesus takes care of the enemy of your souls, Satan. Make no mistake, he's very clear. He calls him the dragon, he calls him a serpent, He calls him the devil, and his name is Satan. Actually, the Greek word that's translated Satan here is diabolos, and we get the word diabolical from it in our English language. And he is indeed diabolical, but he comes to an end. He will not have any any input into the things that go on from that point on until the end of a thousand years. There'll be a thousand years on the earth without the influence of Satan. Isn't that wonderful? That sounds really, really good. Now, there are some in the churches who teach what is known as amillennialism. And that is just simply a negative. Ah, the A in the amillennium, is in the Greek language the word for not. So not a thousand years. They teach that there won't be a millennial reign of Christ, that that's not literal, that that's something that you should spiritualize, and that we're already in that millennial reign of Christ because He's reigning in heaven with His Father, seated at the right hand of His Father. He is seated at the right hand of God. But I submit to you that Satan is still very much involved in the events that are going on in our world today. Peter even said that very thing. Satan goes about seeking whom he may devour. He's still active in the world. So their idea, those who teach such things, just doesn't line up with the Word of God. And again, spiritualizing the Word of God is a very, very dangerous thing, I believe. So there are times when you must realize that you should indeed take things very, very literally when it's presented to you, as often as this phrase, a thousand years, is mentioned in this passage that we'll be looking at today. I'd like to read a quote from a man who passed away in 1965. His name is Dr. David L. Cooper. And he said this, When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. So what he's saying here is, look, if you can read the words in the Word of God in such a way as to appear to be normal, actual events then it makes no sense to do anything other than to believe them as common sense. That's what we try to do as we go through the Word of God. We look at the Word of God and we take things very literally that make good sense in a literal sense. So when Jesus comes on the earth and reigns, He's going to come literally and set His feet upon Mount Zion. Zechariah tells us that in chapter 14 of that great prophetic book. We know those things are going to take place because the Word of God is very, very clear. We also know that before he steps on that place in Jerusalem, just outside the city, he's actually going to arrive on the earth in another location. He's going to arrive in a place that's referred to as Basra, a territory just southeast of Jerusalem, where there is a mountainous range in what was once known as the nation of Edom, and there was a city there named Petra. And the reason I mention that is because during the last half of the tribulation period, there will be many Jews who will be taken to that city to be protected for the final three and a half years. They will have believed in their God and they will have rejected the Antichrist, and they will have been protected by God miraculously by bringing them safely to that place and preserving them there for the last three and a half years. Jesus stops there first on his way to Jerusalem and gets those mortals, Jews, to join with us on our way to Jerusalem. That will be a most interesting experience, I'm sure. The book of Isaiah tells us about that because it is there that we find out The question that is given to Jesus as he enters into that place on Mount Zion, why are your robes red? And he's going to tell them because the enemies have been dealt with. But he comes from Basra, Isaiah tells us, which is another name for the city of Petra. So... All of those things are taking place at the end of the tribulation period. Here in Revelation chapter 20, we just saw that the enemy is going to be bound for a thousand years. Look at verse 3 and see how that takes place. It says, And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I don't really like the sound of that. Yes, I like the sound of the fact that he's going to be bound. He's going to be put in a place where he cannot escape. An angel who has the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. We're not told what the angel's name is, by the way. There are places where Satan and Michael interact in the Word of God. In one place, it's for the body of Moses. And all we know from that experience is that Michael the archangel stands before Satan and argues with him over the body of Moses. Satan wanted Moses' body. God did not allow him to have it. But all we know from that conf- confrontation is Michael's words saying, The Lord rebuke you. There wasn't a battle. There wasn't any kind of a warfare going on. It was just a basic argument. Michael won the argument. Satan had no choice but to give him over to Michael. But it's not Michael here that is spoken of as being the one who comes and puts him in chains and opens the pit with the key that is in his hand. Just an average angelic being. By the way, average angelic beings are nothing to mess with, if you will. Another place in Second Kings or in Isaiah, they're in both places. The story tells us that there was a great Assyrian army that circled Jerusalem. And Isaiah told Hezekiah that there won't be one arrow from that army that will fall into the city. As it turned out, one angel of the Lord took care of 180,000 plus Assyrian troops in one night. That's pretty powerful. That's the kind of power that angelic beings apparently have. Remember when Jesus was about to go to the cross. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. And Peter cut off the ear of one of the servants. Jesus healed him. And he said to Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know that I could call 12,000 legions of angels? Or maybe it was just 12 legions of angels. That's 12,000 angels. If one angel can take care of 180,000 men ready for battle, then what would 12,000 angels be able to do? This one angel is able to subdue Satan, chain him. Open the pit and bring him to that place. And he is bound for a thousand years, cannot get out. It's not that he will not, it's because he cannot get out. So that's going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation, of the one thousand year reign of Christ. But take note again of the fact that John tells us at the end of chapter 20, verse 3, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. Why is that? What is the purpose of his reigning for a thousand years? And then releasing Satan for a a period of time. Well, one of the things that should be obvious to you is, again, those who enter into that kingdom of the millennial reign of Christ will enter in, in their mortal fleshly bodies. Keep in mind that because they are mortal fleshly bodies, they are still, by nature, sinful. Yes, Satan will be bound, but they still have to deal with the flesh. Now, they will have, in the beginning, pronounced their allegiance to Jesus Christ as their Lord. And that's a good thing. They'll enter the kingdom, and we're going to see that they will live extended periods of time. Over that course of 1,000 years, there will be many changes that will take place. One of those changes is that they'll live for extremely long periods of time, much like it was in the days of Adam and Eve, up until the time of the flood. You may recall in your study in the book of Genesis that Adam, for instance, lived for 930 years. Methuselah lived for 969 years. But by the time Moses came along, He died at 120. Joshua died at 110. And the ages of men, in terms of their longevity, were obviously decreasing from the time of Noah until our present day. It's varied from time to time over the course of men's history, but the Word of God in chapter 91 of the book of Psalms tells us that man should expect 70 years, and if by reason of strength, perhaps 80 years, Well, some of us live shorter lives than that. Some of us will live longer lives than that. But that's not a bad way of looking at it as an average lifetime. Still is pretty close to what is now the case. But in that day, in that day, there will be many people who will live far many more years than that. Not only will be men and women living during that time in their mortal bodies, but they'll have children. They'll be marrying and given in marriage just as we have always been. But because of the length of years, the population is going to grow substantially over that 1,000 year period of time. We don't know how many it will be at the beginning, but we do know that there will be a multitude at the end of that 1,000 year. But the Bible tells us very clearly. That again, men will live longer lives. There will be changes in the environment. Read with me some of those changes that we find in the book of Isaiah, just to give us a sense for what is coming. Turn with me first towards Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, beginning with verse 6, Isaiah the prophet speaks of those days. They've not arrived. It's still yet to come. But this is what those who are upon the earth during that millennial reign of Christ will expect to experience while they are living through those years. Verse 6, chapter 11 of the book of Isaiah says, The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with a young goat. The calf and a young lion. The fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, not only will mankind live for extended periods of time, but all of creation is going to experience a great deal of change. I don't know if you've seen any lions in zoos, for instance, but they don't feed lions straw. Lions are carnivores, and as many, many animals are, that's what they eat. But in that day, things will change. And I believe that that is very much what it was like in the first Period of history that we know as the time when Adam and Eve spent in the Garden of Eden. They ate vegetation. Now, I'm not here to say being a vegetarian is the best option for you today, but it will be very likely a different environment in ways that we cannot explain. And I think that it would be very wise for us to understand that these are literal statements being made by the Word of God. As we discussed, there's no reason for us to doubt because the precedent had been already established in the Garden of Eden. Well, not only is it true that the vegetation and the animal kingdom will be changed and men will be living longer lives, but turn with me now to chapter 65 of the book of Isaiah and see what Isaiah says about this new creation. Isaiah 65, beginning with verse 17, says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die one hundred years old. Do you know any children that old yet? None of us here are that old yet. But what he's saying is there's longevity in store for those who will be on the earth at that time. Notice also he says, But the sinner, being one hundred years old, shall be accursed. And take note of the fact that there will be death on the earth during that period of time. A child dying at a hundred. The implication is that there will indeed be death. Their mortal bodies will be subject to death still. That will soon change. But during the millennial reign of Christ, that will be an uncommon thing. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build... And another inhabit, they shall not plant, and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall have long enjoyed the work of their hands. Take solid evidence from the Word of God. This is going to take place, it is a literal thing that will happen. It says in verse 3 they shall not labor in, uh, 23 rather, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with him. The reference to the blessed of the Lord is those believers who have entered into the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies, in that first generation. Their descendants are going to experience these things that are described here. It says in verse 24, It shall come to pass that before they call I will answer, and while they are still speaking I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's the promise of the Word of God. Now, I'd like to step back to the beginning again of the millennial reign of Christ. Because it's important for us to understand that there are other things going on that we haven't really looked at yet. One of them is, as we come from heaven with Christ, riding on those horses in white robes of fine linen, and we come to that place in Jerusalem where he destroys Satan, Binds him for a thousand years, destroys the armies of the Antichrist, and as we see, they will also be dealt with. There are more people involved than just those mortals who were left to inhabit the earth after the judgment of the nations. Remember, the sheep will enter in, the goats, those who rejected Christ, they will be cast into Hades. But there are other groups of people involved. He says in verse 4 of chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, turn back there with me. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Who are they? Again, we spoke of those tribulation saints, those individuals who did not accept the mark of the beast during the tribulation period. They lost their lives because they stood against the beast, and they're rewarded by the Lord in the millennial reign by being resurrected from the dead, as we had already been, and they, together with us, Will reign with Christ for a thousand years, and that's not all. You have to go to the Old Testament book of Daniel to see what happens then to the Old Testament patriarchs, the saints before Christ. Well, remember, Paul talks about the fact that when Jesus was crucified, he went into the place that is known as Hades, and he led captivity captive, brought them into the heavenlies with himself. That was the Old Testament saints who received the message, who believed the Word of God. The rest were still in Hades. But there's a compartment, if you will, of Hades that was completely emptied by the Lord at His resurrection. Matthew tells us, in the end of his gospel record, that after His resurrection, there were many saints who were raised also, and they saw them walking in the city of Jerusalem. We call that the first fruits. First fruits is just simply another way of saying the beginning of something that will continue to increase. It's just the first of fruits that is generated where much fruit will later on be generated. That's what the first resurrection is all about. Paul talks about Jesus as being our first fruits. He's the first to be raised from the dead in a resurrected body. Those others that were mentioned just now were also raised from the dead in their resurrection bodies, I believe, and they were brought to heaven with Jesus when He ascended. John sees, in his visions in the book of Revelation, mentions more than once 24 elders, We don't know who they are. We don't know from what era they were from. But we do know that they were there in heaven. But what happens to them? What happens to all the Old Testament saints? They aren't members of the Church of Christ. They aren't part of that which becomes Christ's bride. They're present, but they're not associated with the Church in any way. The Church is indeed unique. We are Collectively, the church that believes in Christ Jesus in this day from the time of his resurrection until now, the bride of Christ, and we will become his wife. The Old Testament saints have a bit of a different expectation. The book of Daniel, chapter 12, tells us about that. Some will be raised to righteousness, and some will be raised to unrighteousness. When does that happen? When Michael, the archangel, turns again to the nation of Israel. So that's got to happen at the end of the tribulation period. So the tribulation saints will be raised from the dead. The Old Testament saints will be raised from the dead. And although the Old Testament patriarchs or saints aren't mentioned here in this New Testament record that John gives us, they are there according to Daniel. And it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Well, what's that all about? Well, we're told by Peter that we are priests of God. A royal priesthood. That's cool. But not only is that true, but Jesus mentioned something about our responsibilities, at least the responsibilities of his closest of the disciples, the 12 minus 1. And he talks about that in Luke chapter 22. I'd like you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 22 Beginning with verse 28, his disciples had been wondering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Jesus puts down that argument and said, you must be servants of all. But he goes on to say in verse 28, listen, in chapter 22 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 28, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and listen, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So it appears that the disciples, apostles of Jesus, will have a special task of judging or ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. But there's also a parable that Jesus spoke of that really fits the rest of us who are the redeemed of Christ's church. Because he says in the parable that there was a rich man. And that rich man gave to his servants, each of them, ten minas or talents of silver. And he takes that time to explain what it is that they are to do with those talents. So he sends them off. As he goes away into a long country, by the way, that a faraway country, that's a picture of him ascending into heaven and then later coming back to the earth. And while he's gone, those servants are to be productive. They are to be responsible. They are to do something with that which the Lord gives them according to their abilities. And when he comes back, he comes to the first servant, and that first servant says, Lord, you gave me ten talents, here are ten more. He made a profit. He did something that produced benefit to the master. And the master's response is, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in, with these ten talents, you will be ruler over ten cities. The second one came to him. He said, master, I took in your ten and I've earned five more. Well done, good servant. You've taken what I gave you and you've made five talents more. And you shall be ruler over five cities. So what Jesus is saying in that parable is that there is going to be something like that for those of us who are his servants He's given us responsibility, whatever that responsibility is. And I'm not saying you need to be a pastor of a church in order to benefit the most out of this. I'm not saying that pastors will gain any more than any one of you who are homemakers or who are teachers in Sunday school or who are just simply in the workplace representing Christ as His ambassador. You could be just one of those who prays constantly for the salvation of many souls. You could be doing whatever God has called you to do, and doing it very, very well. And as a result, you will be rewarded. And the implication from that parable is that the reward will be our responsibility in the kingdom over a certain number of principalities, territories, if you will. That's the idea that is given to us in the Word of God for the church, for the tribulation saints, for the Old Testament saints. We're told in Ezekiel that David will be reigning over the city of Jerusalem, either as mayor of the city or governor of, or king of the nation, Israel. We're not told exactly what his responsibilities will be, but we're also told in Ezekiel that Jesus will sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And all the peoples of the earth, again, those that are still in their mortal bodies, they will be asked to come to the city of Jerusalem once a year at what is known as the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the only feast mentioned of the seven feasts that were given to the nation of Israel. It's the only feast that's mentioned for the millennial reign of Christ. It's a feast of celebration. They come to the city of Jerusalem and celebrate. And it tells us in Zechariah at the end of the chapter if they refuse to come, then God will judge that nation that refuses to send their people. He won't let it rain upon Egypt, he mentions. And all of that to say that those who are in their mortal bodies will be having to do what God expects them. Remember, the Word of God tells us that He reigns with a rod of iron. He is the authority over all the world. And all the world must do as He says. So again, going back to the question, why does Satan get bound for a thousand years? The best answer to that question is, look in the mirror. They'll all be like you are now. Of course, you're saved, you're cleansed from all unrighteousness because of Christ having put His righteousness on you when you became a believer. But if there are those who have not accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will not be part of that wonderful experience that the church will be raised up, caught up together with all of the saints who have gone on before us to be together with them in the air. They will not be part of that group that is married to Christ at the end of the tribulation period, coming back to this earth to reign with Him. And yes, it's a possibility that they could make it through the tribulation period and enter into the millennial reign of Christ. I don't recommend that as an option. Because you might not. If you can't live for Christ now, what makes you think you can die for Christ then? Again, I'm going to read back in... The book of Revelation, chapter 20, and we'll close with these thoughts, beginning with verse 4. Rereading that verse, it says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again, until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, John tells us. Blessed and holy is he who has part in that first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. There's a group that will reign with him for a thousand years. We've mentioned that. But here in this last couple of verses, he mentions another group who did not accept the salvation that was offered while they lived. They are those that are still remaining in Hades. They are those who died not believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior during, since the time of His resurrection till that day. Hades will be filled with many, many souls that will have gone into that temporary place of punishment. They will be raised from the dead, just as you and I will be raised from the dead, or caught up in the air to be with Him and our bodies will be changed into glorified bodies. Those who are in that condition, Christ rejectors, will indeed be raised up in a new, a different resurrection. I started to say earlier that the resurrection that we are part of is actually completed in phases. Jesus was our first fruits. He was raised from the dead. And perhaps those who are referred to in the book of Revelation as the 24 elders may have been those who were raised up with Him in the day that He was raised up from the dead. Later on, the church is resurrected. That's still part of the first Resurrection. In the near future, the tribulation saints will be raised from the dead. That's still part of the first resurrection. The Old Testament saints will be raised from the dead. All of that at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. That is the completion, then, of that first resurrection. That's what John tells us. Blessed are those and holy who take part in the first resurrection. That is an era of several events that take place over the course of time since Christ was raised from the dead until that period of time when the tribulation begins. This other group will be part of those, or will basically be all of those, who are resurrected after the tribulation, and they are raised up not to righteousness, but to condemnation. It says in verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Can you picture it? Satan will be indeed released after that thousand years is over. We're not told how long it will be, but he'll have a means by which he can convince those mortals not those of us who are in glorified bodies, but those who are still in their mortal bodies, those who have been born during the tribulation, or rather the the millennial reign of Christ, they will be His targets. And it tells us that He's got to convince quite a few people. Look at what He says in verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Two things that we take note of here. The first is the beast and his prophet. Those are the two who were during the tribulation period making such a mess of the world they were judged but by the lord cast into this lake of fire they were the first inhabitants of what we call hell they're still alive after a thousand years annihilation doesn't fit the word of god eternal damnation does it sounds terrible, and it is. But that's the Word of God. I can't change God's Word to comfort you in any way if you think that, oh, how could a God of love allow such terrible things to exist forever and ever and torment forever? The Bible says yes. As a matter of fact, read it again. The beast and the false prophet are there. They're still very much alive. But they're in torment, in a lake of fire. And it says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's a pretty long time. Forever and ever means, well, forever and ever. Eternal, everlasting, punishment. But they're not alone. They are at that point. But at the end of that 1,000 year reign and after... Satan does his thing to convince a whole multitude of people to follow after him, to try to take control of the city of Jerusalem and take the throne away from Jesus. God from heaven crushes them in an instant. And finally, I'll read with you the end result. Verse 11, chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whom from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. If you have any questions about what is in store for those who have been Christ rejectors, all of their lives, who would never have accepted the free gift of salvation that God has offered, this is the answer. That final judgment is not for the church. We who have already been with Him and in our glorified bodies, we are not being judged at that great white throne judgment. Take note of the fact that it is only those who were remaining left in that place of punishment They will be resurrected from that place of Hades, from the sea, from the grave. They will all be brought into a place of eternal existence. But they will be, all of them, cast into what sometimes is known as the outer darkness, the lake of fire here. However you want to describe it, and it's described by a few other names in the Word of God, it's not a place that anyone should want to go. You will not find friends there. You will not be partying there. Satan doesn't even rule there. He's just as much a captive captive of that particular place as every soul who has ever rejected Christ. And all of those saints and all of those angels that fell with Satan will be occupiers of that place. That's the second death. We have a responsibility as believers in Christ Jesus to let those who have not accepted Christ know that this is what's in store for them if they don't receive Him. It's so simple. Why would God send anybody to hell? Listen, He does not send anyone to hell. It's your own choice. You can go there if you want. He will not deny you, but He offers an alternative. Take it. And today, if you haven't yet, today is the day of your salvation.